0: Well, thank you very much for coming, and uh, today we are doing, we always have an annual transport seminar, sometimes two, uh, it always produces people who are, are very interested in the subject, but there's also some people who don't, and other people, don't know anything about this. But has the time finally come for road pricing in England? I should be interested to know whether my answer is different at the end than it is at the present. But we're very, very pleased to welcome Alexander Jan, who comes from Arab, which is a, an organization which is owned by staff, and therefore is a very different consulting organization from any other that I know of. <laughs> Alexander has worked in many different complicated environments, including with GLA, and was a student in other 1990s.
1: That's a very <laughs> generous interpretation given it was nineteen eighty eight, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in, in, in the round. But uh, it we're very, very grateful to, you know, to see the coming time. and uh forward to it. Thank you very much. Christine, thank you. Thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. I I fear that working in complicated environments uh, has probably led to me making them even more complicated rather than less so over the twenty or so years. But um, on that theme I think this particular subject uh, is probably one that uh, policymakers makers and, and government have fretted with for a long time and indeed it is one of the more complex. Um, wh- what I thought I'd do is probably just sort of talk for about 40 minutes or a bit less or more depending on how if you lose the will to live um, and um, I just wanted to run through these sorts of themes if I could. Um, I, I will sort of try and bring in a London dimension to the equation because I know that's that's on the that is part of the uh, the reason why a number of people may be here in terms of interest and so forth. Uh, and then we can perhaps have some questions and discussion at the end, if that's okay. Can I ask how many people are here from overseas, and how many of you live in countries with any form of paying for using roads in your countries? <laughs> So a few, so typically our friends in France, Chile, Spain, Germany if you're a lorry user, lorry driver. um, Portugal, interestingly, um, a lot of South American countries, the United States, there is some precedence for this. Um, The UK has struggled much more with charging people at the point of use for using roads and um, we'll come back to that in a minute. So in terms of the historical context, um, uh, some of you will will remember this, uh, it's just before my time, but back in 1963-64, the UK government commissioned a seminal piece of work called Traffic in Towns. And it was so popular that uh, Her Majesty's stationery uh, office, as what then was, had to work with Penguin Books to produce a shortened version of this big technical report for uh, the general public because it stimulated so much interest. And and as I say, going back, uh, getting on for 40, 50 years ago, uh, I thought it would be helpful just to give you a couple of extracts from that report. Um, and as you can see this one says it's impossible to spend any time on the study of the future of traffic in towns without being appalled by the magnitude of the emergency that is coming upon us reference to the car as a monster of great potential destructiveness and yet we love him dearly to refuse to accept the challenge it presents for being active of defeatism so have some post-war optimism in the the critique and um, Buchanan uh, went on to um, so we think that the public can justifiably demand to be fully informed about the possibilities of adapting towns to motor traffic before there is any question of applying restrictive measures and by restrictive measures there is actually sort of menu of things that are typically used to restrict car use as you will be aware things like charging for parking which you could say is a quasi form of road use uh, charging uh, stopping people from parking in Certain areas, um, restricting where traffic can go, and so forth. But I think what we can say with a certain amount of certainty is that we've probably uh, exhausted uh, all the alternatives to some form of road user charging, certainly outside of the centre of London. So, in that sense, you could argue that, um, given the level of, of of concern and and the costs that traffic still imposes on the country in various forms which we can talk about you could say that roadies are charging or pricing this time has come in that sense um, again just to put this in context when we kind of did his report back in 63-64 um, this is building this is passenger kilometres and you can see what the numbers were like um, the cars vans and taxis uh, is the green line this line Um uh, and buses and coaches are this line. Always, always, always get it wrong. Thought they'd been an of use for a minute. Um, and, and as you can see, over the last uh, fifty years, in fact, there's been a sort of fivefold, if not more, increase. I think in huge increase in 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 mobility in the UK, in Great Britain. Um, and you know, think about what he was saying back then in terms of motorcar being this monster and all the rest of it. Well, who would have imagined that You know, 50 years later, 40 years later, we'd still be having a debate in which we talk in the same terms, and yet there's, there's been this explosion in the volume of traffic uh, in the country. Um, and similarly, this is the number of vehicles that have licensed, so this is the population of... Cars um, in the country. Uh, again, this sort of fivefold, in sevenfold increase in fact since Buchanan, um, which reflects prim- primarily increased income, increased disposable income amongst households, um, an aspiration to own cars by uh, by ordinary people, um, and indeed their ability to fulfil that aspiration because affordability has remained within. Uh, their grasp to buy cars and in fact in real terms car, I'm sure cars have come down in, in price for people over certainly over the last 30 years and certainly the type and quality of the car they get so again a little bit of context to, to try and paint the scene for, for how things have evolved since Buchanan and, and when he talks about um, uh, sort of adapting the built environment in order to accommodate the car um, I mean, that, it's interesting what exactly was meant by that. But here, I thought I'd share with you a couple of images uh, as to what some of his contemporaries had in mind for 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 London. I don't know how many of you know Brixton, um, but this was this vision in the uh, sort of the 60s for how Bri- Bri- Brixton could be redeveloped to accommodate, since that century, indeed, to accommodate um, some variant, I guess, of the A23 or, or its equivalent um some sort of southern expressway uh, and similarly for those of you who know Finchley Road and Belsize Park was slightly <laughs> more uh, gentrified as was well slightly uh, you know uh, more uh, 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 wealthy rich areas affluent areas again this is a model of one of the London Road proposals I think this comes from the late 60s so this could have been a GLC scheme um, as to what would need to be done to the urban fabric to accommodate uh, the motor car, to tame it, to whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's, it's taking it off the leash to me um, uh, within, within our existing built environment. And, and I think that, you know, again, consensus that, that, that the problem of having insufficient road space to accommodate all those extra vehicles uh, has has led economists anyway to at least be able to define the problem and indeed make various attempts, some more heroic than others, to put a price on those um, those problems, and we can come back to that. But the classic element of the problem definition as to what congestion and, and lots of use of motor cars. As cause is normally framed in these terms. So it is the journey time impact of people being stuck, which we will all appreciate. There's the issue of pollution and the effect that has on people's health, as well as the uh, broader question of of environmental change and how uh, cars may contribute to that. There's the economic impact in terms of growth and competitiveness and the extent to which you need good uh, road networks to be, Able to form, uh, perform uh, competitively in economic terms, accidents, which again we're f- f- familiar with, and then the sort of perhaps more um, difficult to quantify issues around quality of life. So the extent to which, if you have a lot of traffic, it makes a city, uh, uh, you know, less attractive. It's, people don't want to live there. It may have an impact on crime, neighbourhood, and so forth. And I I mentioned sort of competitiveness, growth, and employment because I think, in terms of one of the shifts that's taken place, there seems to be a return to a view or perhaps a a realization that transport links of some description are actually um, more important to competitiveness and growth and employment than perhaps was thought of in the past. Traditionally, planners, uh, transport planners, will think in terms of these sorts of impacts. So they'll go for the micro. Sort of economic impacts, to a certain extent, so sort of the impact of journey time and so forth, and and the value of that time. But government is increasingly concerned about the extent to which uh, good roads is important for the economy in more uh, general terms. And and you know, various people have tried to put figures on these things, but the CBI, which is uh, which is the employers' federation, employers, the bosses' union, as the unions would call it, um, in a report that Arab was involved with last year, their view was that, that the costs were something like $8 billion a year in terms of congestion, uh, and that's based on the, uh, another seminal piece of work that was done by Eddington, his study, if you're interested in these things, Eddington's work on transport and, and competitiveness and so on and <laughs> so forth. Uh, under John Prescott I think um, uh, you know went into a lot of detail as to as as to the benefits that you can generate through improving networks and how best to to achieve that so so these are quite big numbers in the scheme of things but there's certainly numbers that people will want to take notice of if they're if they're concerned with growth and employment and so forth And I guess that the question that that raises is, given what we've seen in the past, is it you know are we sort of in for worse rather than better? Um, And and if you look at you know the 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 official forecasts, and I know official forecasts should always be treated with a certain amount of caution because you know if they're official forecasts and therefore it becomes policy to accommodate them, then you end up with a situation where there's a self fulfilling program of activity which is designed to meet a forecast irrespective of whether or not people want it. But aiming off for that, you know, if and when the economy returns to growth in the UK, combined with population increases which are taking place, um, uh, the projections are for further big increases in the volume of, of traffic on the road network. The road network, needless to say, has hardly shifted in the last 10 years and compared to the volume of traffic on it has hardly grown at all, uh, apart from some of the motorway schemes that were built in the 60s and the 70s and then some widening after the 80s. So you know, from a policy point of view, uh, this has to be an issue which you know, any policymaker mm-hmm. worth their salt would want to be thinking about as to how to address, um, even though the politics of addressing this are clearly difficult, as we'll see. Could you just stick with that one for a yes, second? Yes, of course. Just, to, um,
0: just because of the discussions which are going on, this period 2010 <coughs> and ten, thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen is that purely government recession
1: estimate? Well, it's a very, very, it's a very <coughs> good question because there is some evidence to suggest that the historical relationship between Increases in traffic and uh, GDP, uh, even though the economy has been shrinking. But there's some evidence to suggest that even before this recessionary period, that linkage mm-hmm. may have become decoupled. Um, and indeed, uh, I know Phil Goodwin and others, uh, and indeed the RSC Foundation and Independent Transport Commission, have been doing work looking at whether or not there is a, a, a shift in the fundamental linkage between growth, economic growth, and, and volumes of car activity and and you know they're sort of seeing some structural changes in Germany for example the United States to a certain extent where uh, particularly younger male uh, males to the ages of 20 and 30 are showing less of an appetite for car ownership and use Well, not, that's because they're all sitting playing PlayStation I'm not sure I'm not sure they should be between the ages of 20 and 30. The other thing that's in here Christine is of course um, the change in London, where again, there's been a, a significant uh, reduction or uh, reduction in, in uh, usage and ownership. Um, but as, as with all forecasts, you know, it's sure. back, back to the future, so to speak. Has it
2: got energy prices built for
1: yeah, I think uh, I'm 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 pretty sure these that yeah they do these these th- th- I think these have an assumption in around what the price of oil is, means. but but maybe you can uh, you can enlighten me on that as on that. Um, but I think they do make an assumption on oil. Whether or not that assumption is valid, of course, is is, is is another question. And interestingly, we'll come back to the issue of fuel efficiency, because it's a very important component of what's turning into a bigger problem now for the government, not one that's simply associated with congestion and accidents and the other variables that, that are traditionally talked about. Um, and, and again, just to give a little bit of uh, detail on, on these are congestion forecasts now rather than volumes of traffic uh, the lines in these lines here are the 2035 projections and these are what's the far left are the two 203 uh, numbers I mean again they come from the department's model but um, you know yeah. the official forecast suggests that it's all going to get worse and particularly amongst you know, this is commercial vehicles in particular, um, and from an economic point of view, you could argue that employees, business, and commuters are important categories as well. So, so whether or not you believe these numbers is is uh, is a perfectly fair question. Um, but in terms of how things are evolving, as policymakers in the department see them, um, it looks like we're stuck with you know. Traffic for some while to come. Having said all that, I mean it is fair to say that that, that some things have got better, and this all does connect to road use charging. So I haven't entirely gone off piece. Um, what this chart shows is uh, UK air pollutant emissions from nineteen ninety to two thousand and ten from vehicles, you know, basically from vehicles, and you can see that they are from vehicles, and you can see. Um, the blue the blue, sorry, the blue is transport and the the, the, the silver, the grey is non-transport sources. And you can see that since nineteen ninety, primarily for regulatory reasons, perhaps uh, with some sort of fiscal and tax encouragement, there's been a dramatic reduction in some of the pollutants that the transport sector has been generating. Um, lead of course in petrol our American friends will think we still, were still mad, pumping millions and tons of lead into the atmosphere in the nineteen nineties. Given that they banned it twenty odd years before them, I think. But but after lead was banned, you can see a big collapse in the volumes. Um, and indeed, with vehicle technology change, use of catalytic converters, some significant reductions in in other categories. So you could argue that in that context, given that traffic between these. Over that 20-year uh, period, you know, it's been increasing the way we saw. That technology and other measures have actually made things better on on that front. Um, and indeed, if you take CO two, which is widely regarded as a contributor to to global warming or climate change, take your pick, um, we can see that technology has been driving a reduction in. The amount of CO2 that new cars and so the new car fleet, if you like, the marginal stock of vehicles, um, have been emitting, and that's also important in the context of of the question of raising funds or extracting funds from the motorist. And I guess in some ways, you could argue that that's been one of the potential sort of unintended consequences. The government has arguably been too successful at incentivising motorists. To buy more fuel efficient and uh, less energy intensive uh, cars. And what you see here is um, this is sort of where we are now. Okay, this is fuel, this is fuel duty, which is about um, 60 to 70% of the cost of fuel in the UK. And this is vehicle excise duty, which is a, a disc, a tax disk you have to buy every year and put it on your car, otherwise the police will come and crush it. But, but partly as a result of those of the step change in fuel efficiency in vehicles, we're now, from a government point of view, we're on a pretty much a long-term decline position in terms of the revenue that the government extracts from the motorist. And this is important because it's a big number, uh, as we'll see. And, and it adds to the mix as to the pressures that are going on in the context of the debate around whether or not motorists should be paying for using roads um, uh, in, in, in the form of some sort of user charge uh, having said that you know the government has done well out of the motorist uh, um, y- you know this, these, these numbers um, represent about 7% of all general taxation, I think they're around 35 billion pounds at the latest count um, and uh, you can see, I think this is nominal but naming off of that The government has used the motorist as a source of general taxation without necessarily having much regard for how that money is perhaps used to deal with the needs or indeed the costs that the motorist incurs. So you could argue it's a sort of an opportunistic form of, 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 of cynical stealth tax whereby the government has been putting its hand in the pocket of motorists for a long time and to great success because many people don't understand what proportion of the cost of fuel is, the raw material, the retail cost, or goes in tax, uh, or duty, or VAT, that's non all these things. So they've done pretty good, uh, done pretty well at, at, at doing that. Um, but interestingly, uh, there's evidence to suggest that, and we'll see a bit more in a second, that that policy has actually started to... Uh, fall away now. And what you have here is the pre-tax cost of petrol at the top here okay, as a proportion of the pump price and then this is VAT in dark green and duty. so you can see you know back in Gordon Brown's day, I think we I'm to being unfair to Gordon Brown uh, you know getting on for 85-86 percent of the cost of fuel was just a form of taxation going to the government. And what's interesting is is uh, that the government's attempt to use what's called the escalator uh, to extract continually real-term increases in tax from the motorist has effectively been abandoned as a policy. So in the context of increased fuel efficiency, uh, the government's been racing against the motorist, in effect, to, to maintain and, at the margin, increase the real value of tax and duty that it's been extracted through fuel prices and what and, and, and what you see here is various governments announcements for the 3%, 6%, 5% 6% escalator which basically was an, a commitment by government to put the real cost of fuel duty up by those amounts probably above RPI actually um, the more feeble latest attempt was a 1% escalator which has since been abandoned uh, a 1 penny escalator, I do very and and you know is that some excellent work by our friends at the RIC foundation and the Institute for Fiscal Studies concluded last year one, overall one cannot help but think that current levels of motion taxation have little to do with either sound revenue raising principles or external cost arguments. rather they are an accident of history by which the government raises as much as it can get away with um, so it gives you a bit of context as to as to you know why we ended up where we've ended up. So, um, just to sort of try and summarise some points from from where we've, what we've talked about. Uh, 7% of total exchequer income comes from the motorist. There's a projection of a 44% increase in traffic to 2035. But fascinatingly, because of fuel efficiency primarily, there's going to be a reduction in the, in the tax take by the government, £13 billion a year, which is, is not a small, it's about the equivalent of three pence in income. <coughs> tax. Um, you, we've seen how congestion is set to get to get worse, and um, the other pressures now, uh, particularly here, are this population growth we talked about, and, and um, and an aging asset base, so a lot of the road network that was built by the public sector in the 60s and the 70s is now starting to reach the end of its useful life, which raises big questions as to how it's going to be paid for, because no one has been saving for it, you know, to spend it on, saving on a rainy day to spend it for when we we needed to um, to replace it, and we saw that in, with the Olympics and the shutting of the A4 and the A14 and various other things. So, uh, a little bit about London now, if I may. Um, Quite interesting, interesting experiment that took place back in 2003 with the introduction of the congestion zone, um, which was a charge for driving either in or into, or indeed out of, as such the uh, relatively small area of of, of central London, 22 square kilometres, um, and and Stony was telling me earlier before it was introduced there was. Considerable public opposition to congestion charging, and as you've probably guessed, you know the public public opinion is, a, is an incredibly important variable in the equations to uh, government's appetite for introducing charges. Um, but but you know, to his credit, the mayor uh, stuck with his plan. He went for uh, a February two thousand and three introduction, three years after he was elected, and as you can see, within a year. Um, there was about a 17% improvement in in daytime average speed within the zone, which I can tell you, you know, in policy terms in the UK, for the public, to achieve anything uh, like that is regarded as a remarkable success. So it may not seem very much, you know, a couple of kilometres an hour, but people really were quite. Um, uh, Gobsmacked by that improvement, and indeed that was reflected in in the public acceptability after the congestion charge was introduced, in terms of how people felt about it. And generally, there was a very positive. Uh, you know, public opinion went from being anti to pro after it was introduced, and that's you know must have some lessons for answering the question as to whether or not the time has come. Well, that's
3: that's the average, so that includes traffic lights oh, and stuff. So. Driving speed obviously increased
0: by much more than that, maybe five or ten kilometres per hour, which
1: would be quite reasonable. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's right. So, I mean, yeah, possibly. I mean, all things be equal, if traffic lights, I mean, they did fiddle with the traffic lights, which is another story. Um <laughs> yeah. But. uh but um, if they if they'd left the traffic in front Tony, I don't think we will ever know, will we? Because the traffic lights were changed very much at the same time. Um, I'm just trying to work out in my own mind. If if you left the traffic lights constant and the average speed went up, is the only improvement then in the speed of are getting from? To the traffic lights act as a as a as a, as a Constrained, so you can race to the traffic lights, and the overall journey time is the same. But you're right. So if average speed is increasing, then you're right. It probably is, as opposed to journey time being reduced. Average speed, you're right. It, it may well, you know, um, be things moving around more quickly, so the improvement is more dramatic. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about the, the, the congestion charge as it evolved was that Ken then sort of decided to. Develop a more broader range of um, exemptions for certain types of vehicles. So, all of a sudden, environmentally uh, less damaging vehicles were given um, exemptions. So you then start to say, well, it's called a congestion charge, but hang on a minute. I'm actually, you know, if your car was low polluting, then you were allowed to drive for free. In fact, and uh, as we we'll see, as you may have seen from the papers today, this man looks like he's going to put a bit of a stop to that. Um, so. There was a certain amount of, you know, uh, debate. I think as to was was this really a congestion charge versus something else. Um, but to to its credit, the congestion charge celebrates its 10th anniversary later this year, um, and to a large extent, it's regarded as being a public policy success for London. Um, and and. Uh, if you look at the numbers, and I'm sorry these are very small numbers at, uh, if you're at the back, but this this chart shows people entering central London during the morning peak from 1996 through to 2010. Uh, this line here is private cars, so the numbers go 143, 142, 140, 135, 137, 105, thousands, and then uh, we're down to 86,000 with the introduction of congestion charging. I think the survey data is probably from October in that year, um, and for 2003, I think we do two surveys a year, October and and March, possibly. Um, And then the numbers have continued to decline, to a certain extent, um, down to 67,000. Now this is out of a total of around just over a million. And it is worth pointing out that, if you think about it, comparatively few people, you know, have been, were affected by the congestion charge in a bad way, i.e. ended up having to pay it, you know, so in a city of what is now 8 million, um, having 86, 87,000 people paying something is not necessarily uh, a huge um, political risk. Although the benefits of the charge in terms of that obviously many people would experience addresses a wider population, even if you're, you know, one of the uh, 115,000 who come in by bus, or, uh, you know, if you've got connections by rail and then you take the bus, 339,000 and so forth. So so relatively few people were affected in an adverse way by the congestion charge, and indeed many of them, of course, benefited because they paid something and, and the traffic speeds went up. Which of course is the whole point of the, the exercise. On the on the sort of the, the downside, not to be too sort of depressing about this, but you know, the London congestion charge involves a number plate recognition system. So it checks number plates of cars against a central database and if it doesn't recognise your number plate then you get a fine and the system has changed now which we can talk about a bit about but originally you couldn't, you, you couldn't um, easily prepay so the system was one where you had to pay every day uh, that you were going to go into the zone and um, the remarkable thing is around half the revenue raised um, went on running the scheme Okay, so if you think about sort of, you know, well, I think somebody talking about the canons of taxation, you know, that they should be fair and equitable, uh, easy to enforce and low cost, something like that. Um, you can see that, you know, to be spending nearly half of your income on enforcement and monitoring and so forth, you can see why that isn't naturally attractive to other cities, for example. I mean, the other the other factors which are probably worth throwing into the equation were, uh, the Downing Street pe- pe- petition in 2007, which had two million signatories, uh, um, um, saying sort of uh, you know registering their their their, their out, uh, outright opposition to road user charging or pricing from Tony Blair. Um, the western extension to the congestion zone, which covered Kensington and Chelsea and a few other places, was withdrawn by Boris Johnson uh, not so long ago. Um, There was no big vote in favour of congestion charging in Manchester back in in April 2010. Au contraire, nearly four-fifths of people voted against a scheme which is very similar to London and had a package of about £3 billion of investment in trams and other public transport associated with it. it's a much broader area. It is a broader area. It's
2: like the whole of Greater London.
1: Yeah, but, 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 but more modest amounts, arguably, involved, and an in, inner cordon and in an outer cordon. So, you know, um, you're right. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. But there was sort of all these gleaming new trams which were being dangled in front of the lecture, And uh, we, we didn't really have that in London. Um, but there was a resounding vote against it. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, coming back to the terminology, the language that's used. Congestions, Congestion, coming back to your point about journey time, or you know, how mm-hmm. densely packed are the roads, certainly in 2007, congestion was as bad as it was in 2002. So fewer vehicles, but actually the experience of using Central London, walking around it, was in some ways more similar to pre-congestion charging. And this is a, this is a very, very important issue because of course the way in which the capacity in London has been used that has been freed up is a big question as to public policy question as to whether or not you're giving the motorists back something for pay or you're using the benefits of capacity for other purposes such as uh, longer pedestrian phases on the traffic lights or bus priorities or lots more roadworks uh, in particular. Um, and, you know, it is probably fair to say that that other cities haven't exactly rushed to implement a London scheme. And, indeed, internationally, very few cities have adopted some form of congestion charging or user charging. Uh, New York nearly introduced it, um, but it was voted down at the state level. Um, I think Stockholm has a scheme in place which is regarded as 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 successful, but at the scale of that, you know, the scale involved is much smaller than compared to London and New York. And 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 I think I'm right in saying that even though there's a review going on at the moment about roads in London, there is no great appetite for larger scale schemes in London. And I think that does come back to the point of how many people can you get away with affecting without creating a huge political liability uh, for yourself. Which is probably the Manchester point. You know, it's the number of people who would have been affected mm-hmm. in a city where I don't know, seventy percent of people, sixty percent of people drive to work, compared to London, where as you saw, the numbers were no more than ten percent being affected in the central London area. So, what, what, what's sort of happening now? Where, what sort of where's it all gone? I mean, the government to various persuasions. Have sort of floated the idea with the electorate, uh, as as we saw before with Tony Blair back in the 1990s, and he got a resounding sort of you know thump across the um, internet uh, for coming for even booting the idea. But what was fascinating is that last March, um, David Cameron made this speech at the Institute of Civil Engineers, which seemed like he'd sort of taken a brave pill. And, and, and what was fascinating is that when he turned up to give the speech he had neither anyone from the Treasury nor from the Department for Transport with him, which <laughs> is unusual to say the least, and you kind of learn to pick these things up and he made this quite, you can see, find his speech on on, on uh, New Statesman and other sites, he made quite a remarkable speech for those who were in the audience uh, in which he was talking about the issue of transport from the needs to finance and the economic the competitiveness argument. And, you know, he he obviously been spending too much time with Dita Help who he used the lectrium because uh, you know this is this is this is sort of big stuff in policy terms for for, for people like um, people like me who follow it. But um, no one's really solved the problem. Um, this is roads primarily. Uh, we've had a failure of vision and financing, there's been a failure of nerve. No government has acted with necessary determination to deal with bureaucratic hurdles and vested interests. Um, To put it crudely, we've become good in Britain at sweating old assets. So, um, you know, this is sort of powerful stuff from those of us who think government is there to deal with long term and difficult, take long term difficult decisions. And he went on to talk about, um, he was a bit defensive about road tolling as such. Um, but he saw he made, he made some quite interesting comparisons, for example, with water, where we have a privatized water system in the uk which is regionally based um, and which uh, now involves water metering for a lot of people, so they pay for their water in the same way that we pay for our phones or electricity, and at the time that was thought to be politically toxic uh, in the same way as road user charging and he then went on to announce a study. Um, which they didn't know they we were doing because um, we got a phone call the next day or the day before from Treasury saying, do you know anything about this study? Um, but he's asked, he asked DFT and Treasury to carry out a feasibility study for reform of the national roads uh, system um, and that's really the motorway network and some of the major Trump, Trump roads. And he was a bit defensive, you know, he said, let me be clear this about mass tolling, we're not tolling existing roads, I don't use the word existing, but he said it's all about getting more out of the money, uh, out, uh, more out of the money that motorists already pay. Now, as we've already seen, the problem with that argument is that the motorists, the money that motorists are paying is going down, not up. Um, so there's some slight of hand in, in the statement. Um, but aiming off for that, in relatively recent terms, it was clearly a change in policy that was signalled or a, an interest in changing policy and um, the report is not out yet but um, we've all been sort of running around trying to find out where it's got to um, but, and it now appears that it's in the balance as to whether or not some of the ideas it's talking about which include a, 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 a charge for using the motorway network um, it's in the balance as to whether or not it will see the light of day in that form, and indeed signal a change in the way in which the major road network is owned and operated and managed. Um, I'm conscious of time, so just to sort of put some flesh on that part of the argument in terms of the case, there, you know, there are there's a big backlog of roads in the UK that, using the government's own measures, appear. Uh, in need of being built, so there's a there's a there's a funding gap there, which is quite big, uh, which at the moment the government doesn't have the means to close from its own resources. Um, in terms of how our roads rank internationally, uh, we're 26 in the world economic forum table. Um, our friends across the channel are number one. Now, whether or not you believe that's because of their system of paying for them is obviously open to debate but um, interestingly all these countries do have some form of user charging for their major road networks and um well they're more for australia but uh, certainly in these other areas there's a case to be to be made that that the quality of the infrastructure and the fact that it's paid for through a separate charge um is is an important factor well Germany, um, we didn't put Germany up because, uh, because it doesn't really have user charging, it has a charging system for uh, heavy goods vehicles but they don't have a, a toll system as such. I mean it would probably be a good idea to put it in there so we could make the comparison to be fair. Where does it come I'd have to look it up Kristen, I don't know. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's a good question, um, and then this is sort of you know some of the investment that's, that's gone. But to be fair to us, our plea to mitigation is we only looked at these countries yeah. in our report. I'm sure Germany's comes quite, quite higher actually, um, but again, you know, in terms of that issue of historical investment and how the UK has performed, uh, let's try and find it for you. This. The UK is normally at the bottom, but I think on this one we're here. Yeah. So we kind of bumped around in the middle. Um, I
0: think Canada. Just going right up.
1: Yeah. So again, Canada, a big fan of private finance, a big fan of uh, you know expanding an existing network of of uh, of toll toll roads. Um, and, you know, obviously, this is just before, actually, the, res- the, the recession kicked in, isn't it, in Portugal near the bottom. So uh, in terms of the way forward, um, what's the government sort of looking at? The Cameron speech, the report, and so forth. These are probably the ideas that the government is toying with at the moment in, in terms of what it's going to do next. Um, it would appear that there's there's some appetite for splitting up the vehicle license disc so that people who don't use the motorway network and the, the main trunk road network um, would get a discount and everybody who does use it uh, does pay it would continue to have access to the motorway network so the government would be giving something away at the margin um, then there's the issue of the highways agency status the runs agency owns and runs well, own them, but it runs these roads on behalf of, of the government so if it was turned into a company it could be regionalised it could potentially be sold off you could do various things with it there's the concept of the so called RAB model which some of you may have heard of which is this regulated asset base uh, which gives investment gives gives funders a guaranteed return on the value of the asset typically 5 or 6% This is the way network rail and the power networks and uh, water, the water industry has been run. Um, And alongside the move to some sort of rat-based model, you could see independent regulation of the sector with um, customer services obligations, as we see in the case of water. So in terms of what we think the government's thinking about doing, it's not really roadies and charging as such. You could say it's an incremental step on the road to linking a charge to access and use of the network, which, of course, you could then start to do things with once you gained a certain level of public um, acceptability. You know, for for making that change, depending on the improvements they see. And as part of this this approach, you would embed improvements to the network as part of the. Uh, the move to to a route based approach: the so companies who took over sections of the road <coughs> network would then have to fund improvements to it as part of their uh, obligations to uh, to the motorists. So this is one way that the government may be looking to break the uh, break the status quo. Um, and and the CVI, uh, I mentioned them before. Together is an interesting model earlier last late last year which gives you a bit more detail on how it could work with some sort of highways forum with you know either elected representatives or motoring organisations helping to inform the government along well with users, having an independent regulator, and then a set of regional operators able to tap into private investors to deal with the need for investment and renewal. And the charge would come from this user charge, importantly not a tax, but a user charge that would then go to the operator as a form of um, effectively guaranteed funding. So sort of to conclude, you know this is a huge area and I haven't really touched on technology issues uh, which is a big area. and I've only really skimmed on public acceptability there's a lot of work done looking at how you can make these policies happen you know what the public needs to see in order for them to become more acceptable but in terms of a few conclusions I think it's fair to say that you know the problem of congestion is likely to get worse the environmental issues may may not get worse they may be indeed they've been getting better but you know whether it's a green car or, a, or another sort of car it still takes up road space um, there's a sort of a, a time bomb now around uh, the amount of revenue that the government is able to extract from the motorists. The reasons that we saw um, primarily to do with fuel efficiency and incentives in, uh, in vehicle excise duty to encourage people to drive smaller cars and greener cars. There's some indication uh, of government appetites to um, reform the strategic road network downing the Downing Street petition must be in the back of their minds um, and you know interestingly from from my world where we work a lot with people who buy seven and and fund infrastructure there, there's this tremendous interest in the concept of the UK going for some sort of uh, RAV type model some sort of road privatized, regulated privatized road sector um, and arguably this this is a Potentially most interest to the Treasury, because the depending how you value the asset, it could be in the region of 80 to 100, 120 billion pounds, uh, which would help solve uh, another slight problem the government's got in the form of the deficit. And I, and I guess you know my final sort of thought, which maybe something we can talk about, is it does bring into sort of focus the question of what are the what are roads for, I and mean, you know what is it. And when we talk about charging for them, what are we trying to achieve in the charging regime? Are we trying to moderate demand? Are we trying to encourage people to use alternatives? Are we trying to soak them to get extract tax from them because we believe they'll pay it? Um, are we trying to create funds to invest in the road network? Are we trying to create funds to invest in other transport systems? You know, what are the why, 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 why? What are the root drivers to policy? Because having more clarity on that will then help to shape ideas and thinking about the sorts of charges and schemes that should be introduced. And I think that there is an inconsistency in policy which is coming into focus now um, that we talked about, which means that, on balance, it makes it more rather than less likely for the government to do something. I guess the question then comes back to whether or not you can gain political consensus so that uh, the opposition recognises that this is a problem they're going to have if they win win the election and therefore they should form a joint position with the government in terms of taking that reform forward. Mm -hmm. And finally, hot off the press from today's Evening Standard um, is this headline and as I mentioned before Boris has announced that green... Hybrid cars amongst others will have to pay the congestion charge uh, or the plan is from, from, from now on or soon now on, depending on what the consultation is. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I've listened over It is interesting that you know, traditionally, when we were teaching this stuff five, ten years ago, we always made enormous distinctions between congestion in, in london and the central cities and the taxation of the motorways and uh, as being yeah. basically one being an efficiency story and the other being significantly a revenue raising story yes. but they seem to have come together and,
1: well, yeah, I mean that could be my my, my presentation rather than the uh, yeah. you know the fundamentals <coughs> of the matter. But I mean, you are interesting that there's a there's definitely a precedent in uh, in Europe and the States and it's for people to associate paying a, a relatively modest charge with using the major interurban networks, mm-hmm. and and we've never really had that embedded in in our motoring culture. So, and that's a terrible shame in a way because it gives you a platform of some sort to build on. Um, You know, you might say, well, it's it's stealth-like, but, you know, if you go into Florida now, you can buy a small device in Walgreens, which will sit in the windscreen, and it will give you free flow payment uh, for all the toll roads in the whole state, you know. So in terms of people's acceptability, the usability of these systems, because they've had that platform, you can see how there's there's a greater um, willingness for people to you know adopt it. It changes to it, subject to of course how much they're having to pay, which is which is you know very important. But in terms of having it in the motorist psyche that he pays at the point or she pays at the point of use, other countries do have a head start at us, and um, you know that's that's a pity in, in some ways. Not that we can we can do much about it. Alex, isn't a problem
4: um, with public acceptability the question of how the motorists are going to benefit? I mean, the the average motorist sitting in the traffic jam is thinking how brilliant it would be if the traffic jam would just go away and probably be prepared to pay for it. But when they look at the road pricing, for some reason they get it into their heads that it's just another tax and the government's just yeah. spending it on on, um, all sorts of things um, that benefit them not at all, some of which transport things like buses and bicycles that they may not want in the least. And in a way, London was a special case. as not only did um, the government rather conveniently, for for, Ken, declare war on um, Iraq the week he introduced it, which helped a lot um, in getting it accepted initially, uh, but also, um, because of the level of the congestion in central London, um, just by introducing the pricing, you could reduce the congestion. so the motorist was actually benefit. And yeah. While the Treasury is thinking of ways to raise money out of even more money out of transport, um, the motorist is going to be very uh, very much against um, road pricing. And it's very difficult to see how that's going to
1: change while government doesn't want to build more roads. Yeah, I think, I think you've hit on a, a, a very important area. And in fact, the work that was done by um, John Walker for the RSC Foundation um, uh, draws on some survey work by O-Anything and, and actually by the RSC Foundation. And it, it, it makes the point, it, it sort of supports your argument because willingness to pay toll roads is highest if if there were equivalent reductions in fuel duty and they're lowest if the level of tolls were set in accordance with the level of congestion and there are a range of things in between then so uh, um, package of better roads public transport traffic management you know 71 percent of people are in favor you know would say we'd we'd consider tolls or we'd be willing to pay them but I think you touch on, you know, a theme that that's come up before in these these elections, maybe, which is people, you know, the cynicism in the electorate as to whether or not the government will ever give them anything back when it when it's sort of taking more, or indeed whether or not they would actually reduce fuel duty or vehicle excise duty over time, uh, or they just use this as a new opportunity to tap the motorists. And of course, the temptation every from a government point of view, is to do precisely that. You know, that's that's their probably their biggest headache they've got. Um, so I think it, it is it is an important it's a very very important point. And you know, Ken was very clever because he was able to talk about. He also sort of flooded us with all these new buses at the time. So there was a kind of a very visible statement, whether or not you use them or not, of all these extra buses flying around, um, and a sense that that was the right thing to do for London. Um and I think I think you know, Tony knows far more about this than I do, but this issue of who is making the decision and at what level and how that's connected to voter appetite or willingness to accept change is is, is, is I think is a very, very important argument. So mm-hmm. Could you
0: introduce yourself? Oh uh we're 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 not sure. done, well, sorry. I'm from
3: Barkett School Planning. So, um I guess to follow up on that, um, the, the question about um, road charging is whether it's, um, well, whether it's, I guess, a characteristic. Uh, I mean, if if it's the case of like you have in Bangkok or in Tel Aviv, um, where you, you have additional road capacity which people can opt to pay for to make their life easier. Mm-hmm. Um, then obviously uh, it's, a ch- it's, it's a luxury, you, you pay that extra amount. And uh, about two years ago, they introduced in River an, an additional lane, not at a, the expense of it. They, they built and privately built extra lane mm-hmm. uh, with, a, with a toll that is dynamic based on uh, right. demand. Uh, so it could go up quite a lot. Um, and it was also a free bus lane. Mm-hmm. It was a sh- free shuttle service that was paid for by the, the profits of the company. So you could you had a parking ride scheme combined with it. So it's... and of course it removed thousands of cars from the other lanes so people could see the immediate benefits from it. They had less, less traffic jams and they had this option yeah. of a free yeah. Shuttle and go to the city, um, but that was building extra
1: capacity. Yeah, and, and and you know, interestingly, Cameron has talked about using tolls to or tolls being introduced to for new capacity. Um, and 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 I guess from an economic theory point of view, I think Martin Moggridge, who's ex-UCL, is um, dead now, but he. He, um, you know, from an economic welfare perspective, a free road and a toll road running parallel to each other gives you the best sort of outcome because those with a high value of time pay; those with a low value of time still are able to make their journey, um, and you kind of get an equilibrium setting up. From an investor point of view, that's a disaster because you have a free alternative, and to a certain extent, the experience of the M6 toll road, which is the own, one of the very few in the UK. Um, where there was a free alternative, and indeed the highways agency went and widened the free alternative, <laughs> <laughs> um, meant that investors, you know, kind of lost quite a lot of money. Now it's more complicated than that with the M6 toll road because um, because actually it does take a lot of the longer distance traffic, which was always designed to take, but aiming off for that, you, you, you know, presentationally. One of the challenges you have with your with your idea um, in Britain, anyway, is this concept of, of, of a two-tier system, you know, second-class infrastructure for those who can't pay, privilege and access for those who can. And although, if we look at every virtually every aspect, other aspect of our lives, paying is the means by which we, you know, we secure what we want. whether are not we can, af- you know, subject to what we can afford. In these areas it becomes very difficult, There's a, a, you know, it's seen as a very soft target for people who, who disagree with the policy to talk about a two-tier system, paying for something that we've already paid for once, um, you know, sort of ZIL uh, loans for the rich, that sort of rhetoric. So it is even toll roads on new capacities is, is fraught with, you know, political presentational risks.
5: I mean part of the resist. I mean there's all sorts of analysing why there is resistance to a move in the direction of what apparently would be a benefit for many people i.e. less congested roads and less pollution or benefits that potentially might come from such so reform must have something to do or it does have something to do with people's willingness to pay for things invisibly as compared to their being presented directly with the same charge. mean, something about that, isn't there? Because um, even if there were a a cast, and I realise people don't believe politicians enough to do this, but if there were a cast iron commitment never to raise more in real terms in the future from taxes abandoned that would be added to an imagined Congestion charge road pricing scheme. People would, like the I mean, people would oppose it partly because of the unknown and the fear that they'd end up visibly paying for something which they're rather more comfortable it would appear paying for invisibly. That's one thing Yeah. comment on. The other is you know, if London did manage to introduce a congestion charge, Manchester, with incentives from government, tried. Do you think that this kind of policy, even on intercity roads, I realise it's more difficult, would be more likely to be introduced by city regional authorities, non-national government authorities, than <coughs> by central government doing it over the whole country in one go?
1: Gosh. Um I think the issue of the perception of payment is 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 incredibly important. I mean, interestingly, Derek Turner, who who uh, put in the original congestion charging, uh, who, who, I, who I knew for a long time, still know, obviously now at the Home is agency, Derek's view was he wanted people to have to go to the trouble of remembering to pay for the congestion charge by and large on the day they were using it. In order to suffer that process to make them think about whether or not they really wanted to drive in. Um, we now have a system which I'm subscribed to, which is autopay, where actually I now get a monthly statement which tells me if I've been, you know, I didn't. So, so, we, so uh, and, and, and again, that comes back to what, what is the objective at heart, because you could argue that the revised scheme is probably more effective at raising money because it's, it's more invisible even though it's a point of use charge. Um, so the act of paying for something I think is incredibly important in terms of how people perceive it. And indeed the government has plans to get rid of the paper vehicle excise duty disc so that you pay for it but you no longer receive it and you will be enforced for having paid it um, by whether well, or not your number plate is on the register which is actually a, a very, again, sleight slight of hand terms, is another way of introducing a form of electronic, it's a form of, it's a very early form, it's a form of electronic charge in the sense that it's enforced now and you you no longer have to stick a bit of paper in the window. I mean, in terms of the, the other part of the debate, Tony, I think it comes back to whether or not, what the, you know, what the government's objectives are because, I, I think that the case for selling off the road network as is and having some sort of payment mechanism in place to to um, reward investors uh, and to pay for the up running of these systems, it, you know, allows the government to raise income from it uh, without necessarily incurring the wrath of the motorists because you could actually need the vehicle access duty tax system broadly as they are and then the government just pays on behalf of the motorist the problem with that of course is it then doesn't send any of the sorts of signals that you may want to send to motorists to um, make them think about you know where they're using their cars and so forth and 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 on the regional side of the equation I mean I guess we suffer don't we in the UK in in, um, in the fact that it's quite difficult for one city or city region to do something without another one playing it off and you know having a sort of policy competition and London of course has perhaps historically been thought of as as unique and different and special because it doesn't have that much competition from the rest of the country. So in that sense, you can actually do things to central London, which, you know, you'd really struggle to do to Manchester or Liverpool because you then get a big threat of people saying they'll move away, they'll relocate, and so forth. So, I mean, you're better equipped to answer that question than I am. I think that, I think that uh, for what it's worth, I think that in reality, given the way decisions get taken in, in Britain, Uh, and in England specifically, I think that if anything does happen it will probably have to be driven from the centre and it may involve some sort of um, highways agency, government corporation which may at some point be regionalised, there may be a voice for local authorities or city regions in in that regional structure but I think as with other forms of privatisation and reform this one will probably have to come from the top.
0: My suspicion
2: is central London that um, business, some businesses gain, expected to gain. So I wonder what what role that played in political acceptability. So I presume that business services, uh, people who want to get taxes around the place, expected to gain out of the system. Yeah. And that's one of the things that differentiates it from Greater Manchester as a whole, for instance, that yeah. you might have expected. However, in they were. quite a strong business lobby, not John Lewis, um, but the other side of the project, Central London, actually, to be pushing for London, that case. That's that's Can I also ask about Anton, because it seems to me you know, you're not really talking about congestion much, and I wonder what, what your reaction is to the situations where they're. Clearly, is acute congestion forecast as well as it's the reality. But mm-hmm. building roads doesn't actually seem as though it's likely to have much impact on it, and building public transport doesn't either. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're simply back to pure demand management, um, somehow you don't seem to talk to
1: Yeah, um, so on the first point, what was very interesting you know, the taxi drivers, those of you who have the pleasure of sharing their company on a regular basis are a clever bunch in London and um, of course they had the this was sort of heaven for them in the sense that when congestion charging was introduced they were exempt from paying. Um, they get to use bus loans as well so there's about a 22 20 odd percent increase in taxi traffic in central London interestingly after the introduction of the charge um, which perhaps tells us something about you know how it, the sorts of effects it had I think I think you know there's there's a long-standing campaign, uh, albeit sometimes a bit wary for doing something about central London traffic. So in terms of the big, you know the major business organisations, London First, CBI and Chambers, I think I'm right in thinking that they were broadly in favour of uh, the introduction of the congestion charge. And I guess, and that's because precisely because at the margin, it will have benefited. Businesses and you know, higher income groups, specifically, more than some of the others, and in that sense, you know, why wouldn't they be in favour of it? Um, in terms of the the other question, um, I guess I, I've kind of lumped outer London and the issues around there into the broader equation. I mean, I think. We've been doing some work with, with Isabel Dedring, um, Deputy Mayor for Transport, on this sort of road strategy that that, uh, that the Mayor is coming forward with. And whilst there is, uh, I think there's a pretty um, relaxed view, or, or actually a more open view, receptive view, to say in certain circumstances, road building or improvements to the road network may be part of the answer. Which is a change in policy, you know, since since the days of the Hayes bypass and all the rest of it. Whilst that's in there, I didn't detect a big appetite for um, some form of, you know, more radical congestion charging that would apply to bigger parts of London. Um, now, I probably think that that. Because of this problem with the tax base in particular, and I realise that's a central government problem at the moment, but I, th- I, th- I think that sooner or later the government is going to have to come up with something which allows them to continue to extract money from the motorists around the numbers we've seen. Uh, um, now, the question as to whether or not there's an opportunity for the mayor, uh, or the GLA, and the mayor to sort of latch onto that as a source of income and then start doing things with that both in terms of demand management and using the money for building things is a, is a great question and you know I did su- I suggested to as well that you know maybe as was in the 1920s London should take over the vehicle excise duty for the London area again and, and take the risk if you like the revenue risk on that source of income um, I think that I think that the question of London congestion and, and and the built environment and developments to it is all tangled up with the population projections, which are now nine million by 2020, um, 2030. And 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 I I'm not sure in my own mind if if, if, if London policymakers and the government are here, so should be able to tell us. Um, have really thought through what the implications of that are for the way in which our city feels is operated, is built um, and the trade-offs between building up in the middle and out into the green belt I mean I kind of think it I sense that it doesn't really people see it as a good thing but I'm not as convinced as some others that that it can all be accommodated in brownfield sites with very low levels of car ownership without there being some impact on on the face of the city and the way in which the city you know looks and feels and performs. Yeah I am just on a few points um, I'm gonna go for
6: the thing to the change of the And um
0: but also on property taxation. On on property
2: taxation, so they've lost their their basic revenues to
0: a very significant extent. So they've got an extreme version of our problem of revenue reduction because the property tax went uh, too rapidly up, so they've now kept it. So it's a major crisis.
1: I'm being Um, looked at, Christine, by... Yes, we're being...
0: We have four... Well, on my watch, that's wrong again. On my watch, we've got two seconds, so uh, perhaps you'd like one minute to answer, (laughs) (laughs) Nicky.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think... uh, You know, the, the... The... the question that Congestion Charging in Central London begs is why it hasn't been you know, replicated elsewhere, and therefore the extent to which Central London, the scheme in Central London is different. And we were talking before about how relatively few people were actually impacted by it in terms of having to pay more, whereas many people felt that they probably benefited from it. And I think that one of the, you, know, the, you could argue that the reasons it because I think in policy terms, it, it, it's a remarkably sensible policy road user journey of some description, because this is how, you know, we ration everything else in our lives, so why should we, apart from healthcare, you know, we've had the option to go private maybe, but we use this in so many other areas of our lives, so why should roads be different? And the problem comes back to the creating of losers, uh, winners and losers, and the fact that a more London-wide scheme would probably be politically much, much more difficult to deliver because of the number of people it would affect and, you know, as we were saying before, very quickly the 10% of people drive into London 60 to 70% of people obviously drive for work in other cities and in the suburbs it's a high proportion and those people feel they have no choice and therefore it's a stealth tax rather than a, a, a stick to help them to, you know, use public transport which is already there and available. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you.